First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we are weak and broken. We are feeble and frail. Lord, we are living in an unsettling time. Father, we thank you that from you we have a firm and sure word. We pray today that you would lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. Where our feet can stand firm. Father, speak to us now, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning church, and it's so good to have you here with us, whether you're joining us physically this morning or like many are watching this uh, message online at this moment. I'm glad that you have joined us, and I do ask that you take your Bible and turn with us to 2 Samuel chapter 22, the passage that was just read for us a moment ago, and uh, we spent some time in prayer about this at the beginning of our service, but I think it does go without saying that a lot has happened in our culture and really around the world since last Sunday when we gathered in this place for worship. Uh, Like all of you, pretty much everything that I have seen in the last seven days on the news or in my uh, social media news feed has been related to the coronavirus. And uh, of course, a lot of it, and rightfully so, has been very serious stuff, but Thankfully, interjected here and there with that serious stuff, some of my friends have posted various memes to try to keep some measure of lightheartedness in the midst of uh, everything that is going on. Uh, This this one I saw, I'm I'm kind of a sucker for Chuck Norris jokes, so this one made me laugh. It said, Chuck Norris came in contact with the coronavirus, and the coronavirus is now in quarantine for 14 days. (laughs) I love that, and... (laughs) And I wish somebody would put the coronavirus in quarantine for 14 days, but, uh, but unfortunately, I do think it's going to be here with us for a little bit. Now, we know, of course, though, that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord is in control, that this uh, virus has not taken him by surprise. Uh, but I do know that there is a lot of fear in our culture right now. There's a lot of uneasiness that is taking place. It is a crazy time, perhaps like none other that I've experienced in my life. And maybe you are wondering what God's Word has to say about the coronavirus. And and strangely enough, if you will go to your Bible concordance and look up the word coronavirus, you will not find it there because it is not there. That word does not show up anywhere. And so, Uh, Today, I'm not speaking to you from a coronavirus passage, and yet it's amazing to me as I laid out this teaching series through 1st and 2nd Samuel uh, over a year ago. Of course, our sovereign king knew precisely what would be taking place in our world in these days leading up to today. And before us, we've come to this passage 2 Samuel 22 and 23, and I believe it has a lot to say to us actually about how to respond in the midst of this pandemic, not because this passage speaks about viruses at all, because it does not, 
but because this passage speaks to us about the Lord. And no matter what is going on in our world, the Lord is a rock to us. He is a fortress, and He is our deliverer. I feel like this is going in and out. Is it going in and out? All right, I'm going to take this off, and we're going to go. Well, actually, I'm just going to turn it off. How about that? I'm going to stay right here behind the pulpit. I like to stay here anyway. It's friendly home, home base here. And so I'll stay here. And uh, can you hear me now from these microphones? Okay, we're going to go with that. And, uh, and so as we look at this uh, song that David wrote in chapter 22, we can find almost a word-for-word copy of this song in Psalm 18 in the book of Psalms. Uh, David wrote this as he reflected back on his life and how the Lord rescued him time and time again. And so as we look at this song in chapter 22 and then the last words of David in chapter 23, I want you to notice with me three declarations about the Lord that David makes. I'm going to talk today. I'm going to tell you what the three declarations are. We're going to talk today about how the Lord is our song, about how the Lord is our Savior, about how the Lord is our strength. And I do hope that you'll listen carefully today to what the Lord wants to say to us through His Word, because with everything going on in our world right now, we certainly do need to remember that the Lord is our song, and the Lord is our Savior, and the Lord is our strength. So again, first off, David says, the Lord is my song. Now, verse 1 tells us that this whole portion of Scripture is indeed a song. Look at that with me. It says, then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of King Saul. As I mentioned a moment ago, the nation of Israel put this particular song into its national hymnal as Psalm number 18 in the book of Psalms, but we see how it began as a very personal song that David wrote to the Lord and wrote about the Lord. Uh, There is a debate about when David wrote this particular song. Some people believe that he wrote it early in his life because of the reference to King Saul here in verse 1. Others believe that he wrote it towards the end of his life, looking back not only on how he was delivered from King Saul, but all of his enemies throughout his life. We really uh, can't be 100% sure, but we do know that throughout David's life, he was rescued time and time again by the hand of the Lord. And because of that, David has an awful lot to sing about. And that's why he bursts out in song in verse 2. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. David uses one metaphor after the next to speak about the Lord and how the Lord has rescued him. He uses the word rock and fortress, deliverer, horn, stronghold, refuge. And because God has been all of those things to David, he says in verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, I cannot read that particular verse without thinking about a song that I was taught when I was a little boy growing up in this church. 
And the words of that song are exactly the words of verse 4. I will, I won't sing it for you. I promised my wife that I would not. I've been singing it around the house this week. She said, please don't sing that. Um, but, but, but let me just share that the word, the lyrics of that song are exactly what this verse says. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Then if you skip down to verse 47, you'll see the chorus of that song. The Lord liveth. Blessed be the rock, and may the God of my salvation be exalted. Now, how many of y'all remember that old song? You remember when that song was hip and cool, which almost certainly means that if you're raising your hands right now, you are not hip and cool. And, and I am there with you. I am there with you, and I've embraced it. I've, I've claimed it. But, you know, sometimes it is good to think back to those songs that we have been taught. Songs that we have heard, songs that still carry with them the truth of God's word. Because the Lord does live. Amen? He is alive even now. Blessed be the rock. May the God of our salvation be exalted in times like these. We need to remember those songs. We need to remember that the Lord lives. And, and notice all the personal pronouns here. Even in verses 47 and following at the end of this song, he's speaking about my rock. He's speaking about my God. He's speaking about my Lord. For David, these are not hypothetical statements. These are not theoretical truths. He's singing to the God that he knows firsthand. The God that he knew by experience. And that's why he says in verse 50, therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. I think it's neat that for us as a church, after studying David's story, that here at the end of this book, we get to hear David's song. Because David had a story to tell, about God's faithfulness to him throughout his life, David also had a song to sing. And Christian, the same is true for you and me and for every child of God in this room. We all have a story to tell and a song to sing of God's grace in our lives. I'm sure that we're all aware that one of the hardest places that has been hit in the world so far by the coronavirus is the nation of Italy. They are now on a nationwide uh, lockdown because of it. But one thing that has been neat to see are all of these, I don't know if you've seen these videos that have popped up online, but all of these spontaneous musical celebrations that are happening where the Italians are stepping out onto their balconies, sometimes with various musical instruments, and they begin to play and sing. And then their neighbors step out on their balconies and grab some instruments and join in the song. And so ringing out over the squares and over the streets in many places in Italy is music. I love that. I love to, to see that. And you know, if, if anybody in the world, though, has a reason to sing, it's those of us whose sins have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this time, we should be stepping out onto the balconies of our lives and letting our song ring out of what God has done for us. I love the words of that newer song, Raise a Hallelujah. It says, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm, louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. David shows us how to do it 
right here. First off, he declares, the Lord is my song. And then secondly, he says, the Lord is my savior. Now, David references God as his savior or his salvation several times just in the opening verses of this song. He said in verse 2 that God was his deliverer or his rescuer. Again, he said in verse 3, God was the horn or the strength of his salvation. He said in the next line, God is my savior. And then again, he wrote in verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And then starting in verse 5 and really all the way down to verse 20, David talks about how dangerous and how desperate his situation really was when God reached down to him and saved him. In verses 5 and 6, he uses four different phrases that all basically mean the same thing. He's saying, I am about to die. It was like a wave of death was about to break over my shoulders. When you think back to David's life, think about all the times that that was quite literally true. This is why he said to Jonathan back in 1 Samuel 20, there is but an inch between me and death. And David lived in that place with only an inch between him and death for many, many years. But then notice in verse 7 what David did in the midst of that desperate situation. It says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. Friend, in your trouble, in your distress, who do you cry out to? I hope that you have a friend that you can call upon. I hope that you have a place that you can go. I would hope that your church family is one of those places that you feel I can cry out when I am in distress. But the number one person, the first person that we need to cry out to is, of course, the Lord. We need to call on his name. And when we call on his name, what David says is our uh, cries reach his ears. That he hears us and he responds. And, and really then starting in verse 8 and the following verses, David is, is describing how God quite literally moved heaven and earth to interject himself into David's situation to answer David's prayers. He uses language of what happened all the way back in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai to describe how God tore open the heavens and came down how the earth was quaking, how there was smoke and fire, how there was thunder and lightning. David isn't being literal here, but he's speaking the truth of what happened in his life in a poetic way. God heard his cries for help and God responded at times in a dramatic way. As we read David's story, it may not always seem to be super dramatic the way that God intervene because God often uses natural occurrences and natural events as a part of his answer to our prayer. One time back in 1 Samuel 23, you might remember that story where David and his men are on the run from King Saul and they're running around this mountain and King Saul and his army are on the other side of the mountain and they're literally circling. It's kind of like Tom and Jerry. They're circling around the mountain and they're about to catch up with David and his men. <clears throat> but right at that moment, King Saul gets a message that the Philistines have invaded the land. And so he leaves David where he is, and he goes back to fight that battle. Now, in those days, Philistines invading the land was almost an everyday occurrence. 
And yet David understood that the timing of this was from the Lord. That this was the heaven parting, mountain shaking, fire breathing God who was interjecting himself into David's time and into David's circumstances to save him from that very moment from his enemies. At the end of his life, David could look back and see all the times that God had done that. You know, God does the same things in our lives all the time. He answers when his children call. Other people might look at that and they might say, oh, well, that was just the timely counsel of a friend that saved you. Oh, that was just a a coincidence. But we know that with the Lord, who is sovereign over all things, there are no coincidences that he is always at work. That he is still breaking through the clouds and coming down to meet his children. The Lord is our salvation. Now, in verses 21 through 28, David might raise a few eyebrows here because to our ears... He almost makes it sound like the reason uh, that God has saved him is because he is such a holy and righteous person who never did anything wrong. For example, look at verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. And we hear that and we're thinking about what David did with Bathsheba and we're thinking, how could he say this with a straight face? Right? How can he say that God has answered me or responded to me according to my righteousness? And we know that many, many times David was not righteous, but was unrighteous. And yet when we dig in a little bit deeper, we see the truth of what he is saying here. David is not claiming to be sinless or to be perfect in these verses. He knows full well that his right standing before God is because of a gracious promise that God has given to him, that it's not something that he has earned. And yet, just like it is for believers today, because of God's grace and because of God's promise, David had a heart that truly wanted to live for God. You see that in verses 22, 23, and 24. He's saying, I I sought to keep your commandments in front of me. I sought to live my life in that way. And Perhaps he's thinking of the two times when he had an opportunity to strike King Saul down. who had been chasing him for years, trying to put him to death. But he did not lay his hand on King Saul because he knew God's command. He knew he could not lay his hand on the Lord's anointed. And he knew that God saw that. God looked at David and knew that he was his child, an imperfect child, yes, like every one of us who knows the Lord, but his child nonetheless. That's why in verses 26 and 27, David moves on from describing his own situation to talking about how God uh, responds to people in general. Look at that with me, verse 26, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you'll show yourself blameless. With a pure, you will show yourself pure. With a devious, You will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. Now again, to be clear, we can't be any of these things. We can't be blameless or merciful or pure unless God's grace makes it so in our lives. When his grace gets a hold of us, he does make those things true of us by faith. But when someone wants to be devious... It says here, with a devious, you show yourself shrewd. 
When someone wants to try to fool God, when someone perhaps wants to say, well, I don't really want to live for God at all, but, but I want to cry out to God now because I'm in a moment of desperation and I hope that God will bail me out even though I have no intention of surrendering my life to Him or following Him after this. They cannot expect that God would respond. God knows our hearts. He knows the sincerity of our hearts. He knows if we are truly his or not. And if we truly want to cry out to God, we need to do what David tells us in verse 28 or what he points us to. He says, you will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. You know, way back at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, this, this book began with a prayer from a mother named Hannah. And this really is the theme of Hannah's prayer. That we have a God who takes down the high and mighty and proud, brings them down. And a God who takes the low and poor and needy and humble and lifts them up. And in a way, that's what we've seen happening in First and Second Samuel. We've met this King Saul who was a head taller than everybody else, who was high and lifted up in more ways than one, and God has brought him down. And then we met a little shepherd boy in the field and God took him from the field and he lifted him up and gave him a promise that will go on forever. This is what our God is still doing today. This is why Jesus said much the same thing in Matthew chapter 23. The Lord Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, friend, right now, which one are you? Are you humble before the Lord or are you proud? If you want to be exalted, if you want to be lifted up and saved and rescued, then according to Jesus, the first thing we need to do is to humble ourselves, to admit we have a need, that we all have a need for the Savior. Chapter 22, David is looking back on his life reflecting on how God has been his Savior. Then we come to chapter 23, if you'll turn there for just a moment, and you'll see in David's last words, his final written legacy to us, instead of looking back, David is actually looking ahead to God's future king and God's future salvation. Look at the first seven verses of chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. It's clear in verses 1 through 3 that David knows that the words that he is speaking are words that the Spirit of God has given to him. That these words are the Word of God. 
And then at the end of verse 3, he starts to speak about this ideal ruler, this ideal king who will rule in a perfect way, who will be just, who will always rule in the fear of God. And, and then he describes what a blessing his rule will be, that it will be like the blessing of seeing the morning sun rise up at dawn. It will be like the blessing of seeing the rain fall down and water the grass and making it grow. He's describing the, the health and the vitality and the beauty of the kingdom that this king will rule over. Now David knows that he is not that king. But David knows that he's been given a promise and he references that promise in verse 5. An everlasting covenant. It was given to him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about a kingdom that would go on forever, a, a king who would be David's descendant who would reign on the throne forever. Now David did not know the name of that descendant, the name of that king, but we live on this side of Bethlehem. And we know that king's name, and his name is Jesus. And we know that when he came, the kingdom began. The kingdom is growing all over the world as people put their faith in the king. And we also know as we read in scripture that one day our king is returning. And when he comes, he will usher in a kingdom that will be like the one that David describes. A kingdom of health and life and vitality and beauty and rest and peace like the sun that rises in the dawn. And so when we speak about the Lord being our salvation, we don't just mean that the Lord has been our salvation. We mean that the Lord is our salvation in the past, that he is our salvation in the present, and that he will be our salvation in the future. That's what we mean when we say the Lord is our Savior. Now what does this have to do with what our world is going through right now? Well, because Jesus is our Savior, past, present, and future, those in this room who by faith have the Savior living inside of our hearts should be the most fearless people on the planet. Because no matter what comes, whether health or sickness comes, virus or no virus, life or death cannot shake the kingdom of our King. Nothing and nobody can take that inheritance away from us. That is why Paul wrote to us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we can declare with David that the Lord is my song. We can declare that the Lord is my salvation. And then number three, we can say with him, the Lord is my strength. Back in the opening verses of David's song in chapter 22, he used Several words there that we mentioned earlier to describe God as his strength. Again, the words fortress and shield and horn. When you think of the horn, for example, of a rhinoceros, it's a symbol of his strength and power. David says, God, you've been my stronghold. You've been my refuge. All of those words refer to strength. But the image that David uses most often throughout this psalm is the image that he begins with in the very first line. The Lord is my strength rock. The Lord is my rock. I need to hear that today. Three times in this psalm that word shows up. Shows up here at the beginning. Shows up in the middle in verse 32 when he writes, who is a rock except our God? The implied answer is nobody. And then again at the end in verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be the rock. 
David is saying, God has been my rock. He's been my strength at every turn throughout my life. And friend, as you look back at your life, can you not see that where God has been your rock? I know I can. I can look back at times in my life where I had nowhere to put my feet, but God was a rock under my feet. When I went through trials and, and difficulties in my life, God has been a rock to me. He's been a firm place to put my feet down. He's been my refuge. He's been my fortress. He's been my stronghold. And church, I know and I hope you know that with everything that's going on in our world, he is our rock even still. He is our shield. He is our fortress. In the first half of this Song, David focuses on God coming down out of heaven and rescuing him and delivering him. And then in the second half of the song, starting in verse 29, David speaks about how God has come and strengthened him. And has given David strength to be able to go out and to win the battles that he had to fight. In verse 29, he talks about how God has been his lamp. You know, we've read a couple of times in Samuel that David was the lamp of Israel. He was like the light of Israel, and his men didn't want him to die. They didn't want that light to flicker out. But here David knows who his real lamp is. He says, my lamp is the Lord. I love what it says in verse 30. For by you I can run against a troop. I can go against an army. By my God I can leap over a wall. That isn't a guarantee that... A Christian will never experience any physical harm, but it is a realization of where our strength comes from, where our physical strength and our emotional strength, where our courage comes from, that it comes from the Lord. I don't know what army you're running up against right now. I don't know what wall is in front of you, but I know who can give you the strength to get over it. Notice what David says in verse 32, for who is God except the Lord? who is a rock except our God. We mentioned that a moment ago. What David is saying is God is not one option among many. He's not one possible rock. He's not one possible Lord. God is the only rock. He's the only one who can do these things. He's the only firm ground under our feet with all that is going on. David adds to the imagery of God making him firm and stable in verse 34. He says, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me on my high places. Some of you perhaps have read the famous book, Hind's Feet in High Places. That book comes from this verse and a couple others like it in the Old Testament that give us this image of a feet, the feet of a deer being able to stand on top of a craggy rock. And it's God and God alone in a world that is shaken and unstable, who can give us feet like a deer, can plant our feet on the rock where we will not fall. And you know, in times like these, the world should be able to see a difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. Christians should not be in panic mode, really ever. Because we know who is in control. Now listen, even as I say that, we, we do need to show each other grace during this time. Christians will respond to something like the coronavirus in different ways. 
Some will go out and feel it's prudent to stock up and to get supplies. Some will not. It's okay. Some of you felt comfortable coming today and being around others and being in worship. Some are watching right now online who did not feel that way. Who felt for their health or perhaps for the health of others. That the most loving thing that they could do is to stay home today and watch online. That's okay. We need to be gracious to each other. We need to understand people will respond to situations in different ways. And I'm not talking about any of that right now. What I'm talking about, though, is on the inside, what should be the truth for all of us who claim the name of Christ is that on the inside, in our hearts, we should be at peace. We should be fearless because we know Jesus Christ. That our feet aren't in the quicksand. That our feet are on a rock. Our feet are on the high places because we know who holds our lives and we know who numbers our days. Something I came across this week that has really encouraged me was a blog about the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon who lived in the 1800s. He had just come to his church, the Park Street Church there in London as pastor when a cholera outbreak occurred in 1854. The cholera was raging so badly in London at that time that Spurgeon writes that he conducted, can you imagine, he conducted one funeral every day on average. People told him that he should leave London, but he stayed on because he said, God has called me to be a shepherd. This is where the sheep are. At one point, the toll of that ministry among the sick and the dying began to wear on Spurgeon. He wrote this, quote, My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear. I was ready to sink under it. I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when, as God would have it, my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window in the great Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in a good, bold handwriting these words from Psalm 91, 9 through 10. Look at these words. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Spurgeon wrote, that reading those words in the shop window had an immediate effect upon his faith. And he was able to continue visiting the sick without fear. Now he wasn't saying that no Christian will ever get sick, but through those words from Psalm 91, God reminded him that as a Christian, we need not dread becoming sick because, quote, we ultimately have nothing to lose and everything to gain by death. One thing that really encouraged me when I read Spurgeon's word was what he wrote about the greater opportunity that he had to share with others about the gospel during that terrible outbreak. This is what he wrote about that, quote, All day and sometimes all night long, I went about from house to house, and I saw men and women dying. And oh, how glad they were to see my face. Many were afraid to enter their houses, lest they should catch the deadly disease. We who had no fear about such things found ourselves most gladly listened to when we spoke of Christ and of things divine. Wow. 
Well, thankfully at this time, what we're dealing with in Florida, at least, with the coronavirus, has not reached nearly the levels of that cholera outbreak in London. And yet, we should be looking for opportunities, just as Spurgeon did. People are anxious, and we can show them grace. We can show them an extra measure of kindness. And if God gives us the opportunity, we can share with them about the reason for the hope, the peace that we have and that they can have through knowing Christ. We won't be able to read all of it, but in chapter 23, starting in verse 8 and down to the end of the chapter, there's a section here that's really like the honor roll of David's greatest military warriors. If David handed out purple hearts back then, these are the men who would have received them. Their names and their exploits are listed here for us. Altogether, there's 37 names listed here. First, we read about David's three, his mightiest three warriors. And then we read about what is called David's 30 mighty men. It isn't exactly 30. There's actually 34 names here added to the other three for a total of 37. If you go over to a similar list in the book of Chronicles, 16 more names are added. It's possible that as some of these men died in battle, they were replaced by others in this elite fighting guard. There's a beautiful story there in verses 13 through 17 about a time when David was in battle near his hometown in Bethlehem. And he, maybe in a fit of nostalgia, said, oh, I wish that I could have a drink of water from the well that's in Bethlehem. Not thinking, of course, that anybody would actually do anything about that. But three of his mighty men heard David say that. They broke through the enemy lines. They got a cup of water from the well and they carried it back altogether 25 miles and they brought it back to David and gave him a glass of water. And then what it says here is that David took the glass of water and dumped it out on the ground. And our first reaction is, what a waste. How could you possibly do that? And yet David didn't do it to waste it. He poured it out as an act of worship. Because he realized these men risked their lives. They risked their blood to bring me back this water. And I am not worthy to drink it. Only the Lord is worthy of an offering like that. You can see the love and respect that David's men had for him and the love and respect that David had for his men. And men will run through a wall for a leader who loves them and respects them like that. Again, we can't look at all the names, but notice Benaniah down in verses 20 and 21. Here's a man who goes down in a pit and fights with a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. And he comes out of the pit and the lion does not. And then he fights with a huge Egyptian man and doesn't have a spear in his hand. He takes the spear out of the other guy's hand and uses his spear to kill him. Now that is a Rambo move right there, right? That is That is impressive. I want you to notice all of these names. Some of them we know what they did. Some of them we don't know what they did. But they're all written down because of the way they served God's chosen king. We find similar lists in the New Testament that Paul gives us at the end of his letters. Lists of men and women who served God's chosen king. Who served alongside of Paul in the sake of the gospel. And what I hope that we'll hear as we look at this list of names is that whether you are fighting lions or whether you are packing lunches or whether you are visiting someone who is sick and comforting them, God sees every mighty deed that you do. That it is written down. That he sees it, he records it, 
and he tells us he will one day reward it. I want you to skip all the way down to the very last name on the list. Verse 39, the final mighty man, Uriah the Hittite. Now you remember him if you know David's story. His name is synonymous with David's greatest sin. It was Uriah's wife, that Bathsheba, Uriah's wife Bathsheba that David took. It was Uriah that David killed to cover up his sin. And yet here is his name at the end of this list to remind us that even though David was a mighty man, even though David was a man after God's own heart, even though other mighty men followed David and served him, that neither David nor any of these mighty men were perfect men. They were broken. Title of this series, I'm Broken. David was broken. We're going to see that again next week in the last chapter of this book. They were sinners. They were dirty like us. And they needed a cleansing that only God can provide. This is what David was asking for in Psalm 51 when he said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And God did wash him. God did cleanse him. And he was able to cleanse him and he's able to cleanse us from the dirtiness of our sin because of the blood of Christ. Here's what it says in Hebrews. Look at this verse. With me, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, right now, more than ever, it seems like people are concerned with being clean. Uh, We are concerned about germs, right? We're concerned about bacteria picking up this virus, and rightfully so. That's why we're spraying Lysol and everything, right? We're using hand sanitizer every 15 seconds. That's why when you go to the store right now to try to buy hand sanitizer, you cannot find it, right? It is gone. Because everybody desperately wants to keep their hands clean. What the Bible tells us is that the dirtiest part of us is not our hands, but it's our hearts. And there isn't any hand sanitizer in the world that can clean it. Can't make a homemade brew. It's not powerful enough. It's not pure enough. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. But here's the good news. Here's what I hope you hear. That grace of God that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ is always available. The stores might run out of hand sanitizer. But church, God never runs out of his saving, cleansing grace. I want to invite you right now to receive his grace, to receive his cleansing if you've never received it before. I want to ask you to stand with me. The Lord loves you. The Lord wants to give you his peace and his joy and his hope. But it starts by coming to Christ, by submitting your life completely and entirely to him. And I'm going to invite you right now to come. If you don't know Christ in a personal way, if you don't know that your heart has been cleansed by his grace, I'm going to ask any of our pastors who are in this service just to make themselves available here at the front. We'd love to pray with you right now about how you can know that cleansing in your life. You come right now as we sing together.